Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we will be featuring Brad Beefus, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fishing for carp on the fly. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Brad a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Below the description of the show, to click here to ask Brad your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to this broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we will talk with Brad Beefus about fishing for carp on the fly. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in 3 through 6 weight. Then enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win up to six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate the nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Brad, we'd like to let you know about our great gift we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, Brad has been kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his book, Carp on the Fly. This book will teach you the habits and habitats of the, these challenging fish, what flies they'll take, and how to put those flies in the right place at the right time to catch carp consistently. We will also be giving away one year's subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, Canada's premier fishing magazine. So if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Brad's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Brad Beefus started his career in fly fishing in his childhood in Boulder, Colorado, and by age 13, he was tying flies professionally. Since then, his flies have been featured in a number of publications, as well as in the University of Idaho Art Gallery and the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. Many of his innovative patterns are available from Umpqua Feather Merchants, where Brad is a member of the Contract Tire Program. He shares some of his knowledge in his most recent book, Basic Techniques for Successful Fly Tying, which was co-authored with John Berryman, and he has a video out with the same title. Brad lives in, with his family in Montrose, Colorado, where he's sales manager for Ross Reels, and he's an advocate for involving the family in the outdoors, so his kids start early in fly fishing. Brad himself is a, an accomplished fresh and saltwater fly angler, who's fished around the world, and he holds several IGFA fly rod world records. And his young son, Tyler, has junior records as well. Brad's expertise makes him a highly sought lecturer and tire at shops and shows around the country. His first book, Carp on the Fly, A Fly Fishing Guide, 
was co-authored with Barry Reynolds and John Berryman and has been the Bible for a burgeoning segment of our sport, along with his video, Tying Flies for Carp. You know, Roger, I'm really impressed with the number of emails we've had from fly fishers around the country who are devoted to carp. In my own experience, the first time I got chiggers as a kid around a Kansas farm pond, it was because of carp, and I've never forgiven them. I'm most anxious for Brad to tell me how to get even with those guys. Brad, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me on the show, guys. Well, Brad, uh, let's start out with how did you get started fishing for carp? I don't think anybody starts with carp, do they? Uh, they kind of migrate towards them. So tell us your story. Well, I, you know, pretty much uh, where I grew up, um, there was a small pond in a city park lake that had warm water species. It had bluegill and bass and um, catfish and um, a few carp at the time when I was younger, I mean like five or six, and I used to fish with my older brothers down there. And um, fortunately for me, my junior high and high school sat up on a hill up above this lake, and um, every lunch hour pretty much in the spring, I would I'd kept a rod in my locker in junior high and high school, and I'd go down there and fish on my lunch hour. And in high school, uh, my junior and senior years, I had kind of an open scheduling, and um, these carp that had, I don't know how they got introduced into this lake initially, but I can remember when I was maybe six or seven catching some on, on bait when we would be fishing for catfish with, with spinning tackle. And, um, you know, they were always, you know, and these were fish that were probably four or five pounds, but they were strong and some of the biggest fish that were in the lake. And then as I continued to fish more with, with spinning tackle for, um, you know, some of the other warm water, the crappie and the bass and whatnot, every once in a while we'd catch them on jigs. And, they, you know, they kind of grew up in this lake and, um, it wasn't long, and we were catching some fish that were 10, 15, pushing 20-pound range. So never really thought about it with fly tackle, except um, days when we weren't catching, you know, bass or some of the panfish and crappie and whatnot when we were throwing woolly buggers and, you know, small little streamers and nymph patterns and, and things. If we'd see a carp, we'd throw at them and just take a shot. And lo and behold, one day threw a woolly bugger in front of a fish, or I think actually it was a woolly worm, um, and it... You know, I took a couple strips and it swam right over and ate it, and it was it was a nice fish. It was about 10 or 12 pounds, um, and I, really that was kind of what got me hooked. So then it was like, wow, these are pretty cool fish. I can remember, I think at that time I had like a um, Fluger medalist reel, and it I mean it peeled some line off and got me into my backing, and that was the first time that ever happened on on fly tackle <laughs> for me. Um, so I just you know I started fishing for him a little more regularly there, and um, as I um, got acquainted with Barry Reynolds, and we started doing more warm water fishing on the eastern plains of Colorado and pursuing pike and some of the other um, species that, that at that time a lot of people really weren't pursuing a whole lot with fly tackle, at least locally, because we were in the heart of trout country in the Rockies. Um, you know, if we were doing a casting class or something and you know, on a small pond and there was carp there, we'd, you know, we'd cast to them and just see what would happen. So really didn't know where to start in terms of flies. I mean, we threw a lot of our standard trout flies and other warm water flies at them and had you know, reasonable success with that and went through a period where I threw a lot of, um, you know, as I did some reading from some of the you know, guys like Whitlock and Lefty Cray that had, had little mentions about carp kind of through some of their writings, um, started throwing some bonefish flies just because they had a similar feeding behavior and we wanted flies that would kind of get down on the bottom and ride hook point up in some cases if we were fishing through cover and structure and um, had some success with bonefish flies and then slowly just kind of started developing some specialty flies for certain situations. You know, maybe we're fishing for grass carp and we're fishing things that look like plant seeds or cottonwood seeds, things of that nature, mulberries in some parts of the country. Um, so that's kind of kind of the, 
the gist of how I got started was just, you know, more accidents. Um, they were they were available. Um, you know, and at that time, I mean, those were some of the biggest fish I'd, I'd ever caught on fly tackle. And, and I, you know, even for Colorado, unless you pursue, you know, tiger muskie or pike or lake trout with fly tackle, I mean, carp is probably your best option for, for getting a, a double-digit sized fish on fly tackle. Um, so that stuff was intriguing to me. I got to ask you, where, that lake, was that in Boulder where you're growing up? Yeah, it was actually, it was uh, Vili Lake. and it Was, was it? Uh, okay. <laughs> I know. Lake in South Boulder. Right, by uh, Southern Hills uh, Junior yeah, High there, whatever. Yeah, yeah Southern Hills yeah. Junior High in Fairview High School. Yeah, I remember that lake. Yeah, I proposed to my wife next to that lake. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got fond memories of that lake. Well, uh, Brad, why don't you go through, I, I think this is a big thing, so let, let's start out with some of the common misconceptions about carp. And, you know, Everybody has called them trash fish at times, and this and that. And why don't you clear some of those things up for us? Sure. You know, I think you know. It seems like, um, and we kind of talk about this in the book. Um, you know, it seems like when when fish get large in size, they're kind of classified. You know, when you get above the the minnow stage, if you will, um, fish are kind of classified as either being trash fish or as being, you know, game fish. And um, carp have been long recognized by the by the International Game Fish Association as a game fish, and they record them. Um, you know, they they carry and record records for for carp just like they do all other game fish. Um, and I, you know, we make a comment or a statement in the book that, you know, it, it's not the carp's fault that they're able to live in water conditions um, and they're found in some water conditions that are maybe not the most desirable. Um, but they're they're survivors. They're strong fish and they're able to to overcome you know pollution and warm water and dirty water situations that are you know mud stained and silted and whatnot um, more so than than most other fish that we find so that, you know it's one of the reasons that they've been able to be so successful and they are you know they're certainly readily available for anglers which is one of the great things about them but I think that's probably you know one of the biggest misconceptions is oh it's it's a trash fish and um, you know, it lives. You know, it lives in the little city pond lake where there's ducks and geese, and the water's dirty all the time. And um, you know, there's there's really no other fish that are present there. Maybe some little bluegill or something that are in there. But you're not finding trout or you know, really big bass in some of those fisheries. And in some cases, you are. You know, I mean, a perfect example is um, Eleven Mile Reservoir here in Colorado, where you know we've got really healthy trout populations. We've got good populations of northern pike in there. But it's also probably one of the premier carp fisheries in the state. I mean, it's clear water. Um, they move up in the, you know, the, the softer bottom bays um, and up on some of the rock structure in the spring when they're pre-spawn and, and during the early season when those bays are warming up. And it's it's tremendous opportunity for sight fishing to really large fish. Um, you know, initially when carp were introduced into this country in the in the late um, 1800s, it was in the, during the 1870s when they were um, first brought here um, uh, and introduced on the East Coast. And they were brought here as a food fish. You know, at, at that point in time, fish was kind of, the, the word fish was kind of synonymous with food. And they were easily propagated in hatcheries and whatnot. They reproduced well in a, in a variety of different environments and climates. Um, so that's why they were originally brought here. And it was, it was interesting. Um, some of the data we found when we were researching the book was that they were actually put on the campaign trail for the politicians uh, when they were traveling via railroad that they could get out and, and have carp as a recreational fish. So even even that far back, turn of the century, um, it was still, you know, there, there was, was a little bit of a mindset that these are a sport fish, these are a game fish, but the primary intention was they were put here as, as a food fish. Tell us about the different 
types of carp. Uh, in the Midwest, we've been hearing about uh, grass carp uh, lately. What, what are the different types? We have, um, you know, worldwide, I mean, there's a variety of different, different carp species. Here in the U.S., uh, the, the ones that, that most anglers are familiar with are going to be the common carp. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're kind of the ones that, that have the, the, the worst bad rap, if you will, because they have that kind of underslung, rubbery mouth, um, kind of you know, kind of a sucker-style mouth, if you will. Um, and they've got a, a real symmetrical scale pattern, uh, kind of that golden buttery color, if you will, or, or gold color. Um, and there's a lot of nicknames synonymous with those guys, you know, the, the Rocky Mountain Bonefish or the Golden Goddess. I mean, they, they, they've got a <laughs> reputation for, for uh, tag names. Um, then there's, we also find what are known as mirror carp, and mirror carp are uh, basically the same as a common carp. The gene that controls their scale pattern, or the symmetry of that scale pattern, um, is mutated. And mirror carp, you'll find, will have blotchy areas of open skin, um, or, or almost completely scaleless, with maybe just a few skins up along the dorsal um, fin area, or back near the tail area, and the rest of it will be just a smooth, soft skin. And there's another species, which is, again, like a common carp, uh, called a leather carp. Um, and, and, again, these are all very closely related. It just has to do with, with some difference in their, their uh, scale genetics. Uh, leather carp is completely scaleless. And we don't find a whole lot of those uh, true leather carp here in the, in the U.S., um, but many of the European countries, those are, I mean, you, if you pick up any of the, the general fishing magazines out of some of the European countries, you're, you're definitely going to see some huge leather carp because it's one of the, the fish that they really pursue heavily in their, their tournament as well as for recreational fishing. And then the other species that we have here that you just mentioned are the grass carp or the, the white emure. And the grass carp, are they're a, a triploid hybrid. And they were initially brought here as... Um, because they're very good at feeding on vegetation and taking care of algae bloom and, and um, over-vegetation in a, in, a, in a lake environment. Um, so city parks stocked them, golf course owners, um, private landowners that had you know, ornamental-type ponds. Um, they can control the numbers because they, they're not able to reproduce, um, and they do a very efficient job of cleaning up the vegetation and the algae, so they can, you know, they can put a limited number in um, even to develop a, you know, a better warm water fishery for, for bass or panfish or something of that nature. Um, the good thing about the grass carp is that they grow extremely fast um, because they don't go through the hormone change and the rigors of, of spawning activity. And the, you know, we're, we're starting to see um, you know, grass carp that are being caught here in the States in the you know, 60 to push in 70 pound range. Um, so I mean, they, they get extremely large. I mean, as do the common carp, but the grass carp, again, just because they don't go through those hormone changes of a spawn, grow considerably faster. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the history of the carp? I they're, they're, they're all, I think they're all over the world, but um, uh, where do they think they started out with, and how did they get to, to the different continents? Okay. They were, you know, the, um, some of the earliest mentions of, of carp in literature, um, Aristotle mentioned them in 300 or 3, 350 B.C., um, primarily um, in, the, in the Asian countries. And the grass carp, as an example, the, the amur or the white amur um, is from the amur river drainage in northern China. And they were, you know, in, in, that, um, in those societies and, and those cultures, I mean, they're very revered fish um, because they, they grow large, they live a long time. Um, you know, they were named and, I mean, they're, you know, really um, 
pretty special fish to, to those cultures. And it was interesting. I spent some time in Japan um, this spring, and it's you know very few of the anglers actually fly anglers pursue them. I mean, they still have a very strong following of of bait and conventional tackle fishermen that fish for these fish. But the fly anglers really have you know it's kind of the you know I think more the mentality that we had um, you know during the 60s, 70s, part of the 80s. You know I think carp really kind of hit the scene in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and has just continued to flourish here in, in this country. Um, in terms of popularity with with um, sport fly anglers, um, but they were you know they just kind of naturally um, were distributed through the European countries. Um, they were given by some of the the Asian countries as gifts to leaders of some of the other countries um, to to stock because they thought so much of these fish. And then again, they made it to the Americas, um, or at least Northern America here in the States in the late 1870s. Um, they're, you know, and one of the things they're they're very adaptable. I mean, it's, they're probably one of the single best success stories of a fish, because they do so well in so many different climates. I mean, you know, we find them down into the you know the canals of South Florida, um, all the way up into you know some of the the mid latitudes in the in the Canadian provinces, um, and they do well. Um, they you know when we were doing research on the book, we found information showing that they were that, that they will actively feed in water temperatures in the low 30s. And, and water temperatures as high as the low 90s, um, so that you know there's very few fish that have an active feeding range of that type of water variation um, that, that we find in freshwater. That's that's pretty good latitudes, but they don't really live uh, too far into the tropics. It doesn't sound like that. The you know the grass carp seem to to do better, and I, I don't have that much information. You know when, when you get into the you know the, some of the Central American countries and you know, like the Bahamas and that type of stuff. Um, I mean, certainly the, the water temperatures would would dictate that they would be able to, to survive in those climates. Um, the grass carp have done extremely well um, in the in the canal systems in South Florida. Um, if you get into the like the Tamiami Canal uh, that runs east west uh, along the lower southern part of, of um, Florida, uh, that you know you've got guys down there that are actually guiding for those fish, and they you know they fish patterns like the hibiscus when they bloom and they drop some of their blooms and stuff on the water, those grass carp will come up and feed on that stuff like dry flies. So it's a whole different dimension of match the hatch fishing, which I know we'll talk about some of the flies and stuff later in the show. Um, but, but again, you know, I think that based on the temperature range that they do so well in, there, there really is, is very few places on the planet that they can't survive. Well, I think everything uh, uh, lives nicely and well down in those uh, Florida canals, <laughs> <laughs> including aquarium fish and everything else. Yeah, you don't know right. what you're going to catch down there, do you? <laughs> no, you don't. What's the life cycle of the, of a carp like, and the breeding pattern, that sort of thing? The um, the common carp are, are primarily spring and early summer spawners. Um, they are they don't build a nest or a red like many of the other warm water fish. They're they're more like a pike in that regard, where they're a distribution spawner. Um, you know some of the the behaviors that you'll see in the springtime. Um, you'll you'll see them breaching. They almost look like a whale. You'll see them free jumping. Um, we, we call those guys hellraisers in the book. And um, part of that is that they're a very social fish, um, and and that is very evident during the spawn because you will find, and you know most of us that have been around waters that have carp in it. I mean, you find large quantities of them up in the shallow water and the vegetation. And you'll get, um, you know, some of the males trying to herd females together. Um, but you'll see those those larger females jumping um, in, in an effort to break the egg sac loose so that they can start to distribute eggs. 
Um, and then it, it's also some of the information that we receive from, from some of the biologists, they believe that the males actually do some of the jumping and the breaching and some of that splashing behavior to help attract females to them. Um, so again, kind of a, you know, a herding effort or like an elk bugling trying to, you know, trying to call a cow. Um, they will, in the right environments, you know, here in Colorado, typically in most of our, our plains reservoirs on the eastern slope or um, some of the lower elevation reservoirs that have them um, on the, in the western slope of Colorado, we'll typically start to see some of that pre-spawn when the fish move into the shallows, is, and, and we're talking about still water, fish will move into the shallows um, as those shallow water areas start to warm up and we start to get into water temps in the 50s, low 60s typically is when they will usually start showing up in pretty good numbers. As we get to mid to upper 60s, low 70s, um, that's pretty optimal spawning temperatures for them in most of our, our climates here in Colorado. And those fish will, um, you know, again, you, you'll, they don't all spawn at once, so it's a, a thing that can take place over, you know, as much as three or four, even five weeks. Um, in some of the higher elevation reservoirs, you know, I'll use 11 mile as an example again, um, you, you start to see fish moving into the shallows in, in maybe early to mid-May, and they're, they're in there still spawning um, as late as like 4th of July weekend um, or the 4th of July holiday. And <clears throat> they, you know, again, distribution spawners, so you'll find them, they like areas where there's some vegetation. Um, it's certainly an opportunity that, you know, they usually have other things on their mind, but it's an opportunity for us to throw a fly to them. Um, it's usually visual and sight fishing, which is what I, what I try and do for these fish. And, I mean, you, you do get refusals, but you can kind of get away from that main spawning pack, if you will, kind of get in, if you can either fish out of a float tube or just wade fish in an area where you can get away from that main group of fish and, and cast to some of those fish that are cruising in and out of that, that's going to increase your chances of, of getting some interest from those fish in, in feeding and hopefully hooking some fish. Okay. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's take a brief break here, uh, Brad, and We'll come back uh, talking with Brad Beefus about uh, carp, and then we'll be moving on into how to corral them with a the fly. Jacqueline's Fly Shop in West Yellowstone, Montana, world-renowned and operated by renowned angler Gob Jacqueline, has served Yellowstone National Park and the surrounding area for 37 years. His complete full-service fly shop and guide service provide the best the area has to offer. Browse their website, www.jacklands.com flyshop.com or stop in at the shop. It's worth the trip alone to visit with Fly Fishing Hall of Famer and Certified Master Fly Casting Instructor Bob Jacklin. Their website is www.jacklinsflyshop.com or call 406-646-7336. That's 406-646-7336. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Brad Beefus about carp on the fly. If you'd like to send a question in to Brad, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, below the description of the show, to click here to ask Brad your most important question. We'll receive those questions promptly, and we'll be answering as many as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Brad, you do a lot of presentations around the country, both for shops and uh, and at the big shows. Uh, how how would a shop uh, get hold of you to uh, arrange something like that? Um, they can reach me via email at blbeefus at msn.com. Okay. And what kind of topics do you typically cover in uh, in some of these presentations? I've got a, a pretty broad range. I've got about uh, oh, 15 or 16 different um, 
PowerPoint programs uh, that I that I make available to different groups and shops. Um, you know, anything from carp to warm water, um, still water shows, many of the um, Rocky Mountain and, and Colorado River systems. Um, you know, the, the carp show, interestingly enough, is probably the, the show that I'm, that I'm most asked to do. Hmm. Um, you know, I think it's just because it's a, a fairly hot topic right now. More and more people are getting into it and, and have questions and want to learn more about these fish and, and how they can go and catch them. So, um, you know, I've, I've just done a couple of them recently. In the last month, I uh, did uh, a show for the Fort Worth Fly Fishers in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, earlier this month, and um, had an opportunity. You know, and, and again, this kind of speaks for the for the carp. I mean, one of the great things about them is they're found so many places. Um, I flew into Fort Worth. Um, the the, uh, the day of my program, and I was going to do the program that night, and I had about three hours to fish. One of the, the club members picked me up, and we went and fished on the Trinity River right through downtown Fort Worth. And uh, the carp didn't cooperate a whole well, uh, a whole lot for us that day, but um, you know we had shots at probably 20, 25 different fish, um, just you know within minutes from the airport. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know it's, it's one of the cool things, and then had shots at fish that were you know 10 to 12, 13, 14 pounds. I mean some you know nice big fish. Sure. Okay, so that's blbeefus at msn.com if anyone wants to reach you for a presentation. That is correct. Okay. Now, tell me, do you think there's so much attention given over to carp at this point because they're so uh, challenging and, sport and incredibly sporting, or is it because there's so much pressure on some of the more traditional sporting fish species? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, you know, having grown up on the front range of Colorado where, I mean, you know, the, the trout rivers um, can get fairly crowded at times, um, and I was in retail. I had a fly shop in Boulder, Colorado for a number of years, and, um, you know, doing warm water and things like carp, kind of alternative species, was my way of getting away from the crowds when I had my free days to go and fish. And, and they're close. You know, they're close to home. I mean, one of the questions I ask in my presentations are of people when I start is, you know, how many of you within you know, 10 or 15 minutes from your home or your office, know of a place where you can catch carp. And in most areas in the country, probably 80 to 85% of the hands go up in the, in the audience. So it doesn't require taking, a, you know, a full day off of work. Um, you know, I had customers that used to come in my store that, you know, they would go and get an hour's worth of carp fishing in in the morning before they went to the office, or they could even go do it over their lunch hour. So I think just the availability of them, um, somewhat due to crowding of fishing for other species, um, you know, certainly things like whirling disease on, the, on some of the trout populations where, where we've seen some trout fisheries decline, um, you know, this gives anglers another opportunity. The, the cool thing about them during, you know, throughout the Rocky Mountain region and other parts of the country, if, if you've got runoff and high water in the spring um, when the trout streams are, are blowing out and not fishing that well, is about one of the peak times to start fishing for the carp because a lot of the, you know, the lower elevation reservoirs are getting warmed up and those fish's metabolism are, are, is really getting going. Um, and it's a good opportunity to go start looking for them. Um, plus, I think there's, you know, for the people that have tried them, um, you know, if you like catching big fish, carp are definitely a fish for you to go pursue on flies um, because they do get big. And, the, you know, they are very technical. I mean, it's, you know, I used to tell customers when we would go do a saltwater trip, as an example, to go do bonefish or go do redfish, um, carp are a great primer because, you, you know, they have a lot of the similar feeding behaviors as, as those two fish. Um, they're found in shallow water. Many times if you've got clear water situations, you can sight fish for them. Um, you know, unfortunately we don't have that everywhere that they're located, but um, they're a good, 
a good primer fish to go and hone up your casting skills and your presentation um, if you're going to go do bonefish or redfish or, or other salt species like that. Well, uh, Brad, do, do the carp have any beneficial uh, effect on the, the waters of the fisheries? Um, are, are they a fish we should release, uh, or are, are they one you throw on the bank? What's, uh, you know, what, what's your take on that? Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, certainly the, the mentality not so long ago, um, you know, or, or the, the feelings of many anglers is, you know, again, they are trash fish. Um, they overpopulate. They, you know, they destroy the fishery. They eat eggs from the other game fish when they're trying to spawn. Um, so, you know, a lot of anglers didn't release them. And, you know, and you still have, you know, m many people enjoy, um, you know, shooting them with a bow and, and um, you know, disposing of them that way. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely practice catch and release on them um, because I enjoy catching them so much. And certainly enough, if I've got a good healthy carp fishery and I can go and catch large fish there, um, you know, I want to I protect that resource. In the case of like grass carp, um, certainly they improve the environment for a lot of the other game fish because they're, they're helping with vegetation control. Um, if it's managed properly, I mean, if, if too many of them are put into an environment, they can completely clean it out to where you lose a lot of that structure and a lot of the... Um, um, the vegetation that the other aquatic life needs to, to thrive. Um, but in those situations, certainly they can, they can help an environment. Um, you know, and, and if, if you've got a, a healthy population, you know, say ba a bass fishery or something, um, and there's you know, a, a small number of carp present, but you've got larger predatory species in there, they can certainly keep the carp numbers in check just through predation. Um, and I think that's where carp certainly get some of the bad rap. You know, I mean, I think probably the biggest thing that they can do is there's, as we mentioned in the in the beginning of the show, there's so many fisheries that don't sustain a lot of the other game fish we all like to go fish for with fly tackle that that carp can live in. So we can take an otherwise non-fishery and turn it into a into a good carp fishery for us to go and enjoy these fish. How how big do they get? They they can get large. Um, the the uh, all tackle record that's recorded. Uh, in the IGFA records is a, a 75 pound or just over 75 pound common carp um, that was caught in France. And grass carp, I think the, the existing all tackle record is right around 68 pounds right now. Um, and that, that may have just been broken here in the last year or so. Um, but you know, as I mentioned, they're starting to find and, and see some grass carp. I've got a gentleman that lives in Italy that sent me a, a photograph of a grass carp he caught earlier this summer, and um, it was it was in that mid 60 pound range, and it looks like a tarpon. I mean, it's just a huge fish, um, and he caught it on a dry fly of all things as well, which was pretty cool. But uh, they do get big. And are they um, are they a strong fish? I mean, did they give you a good fight? They they are a very strong fish. Um, you know, the, and that's again one of the things that you know some of the the, the sporting anglers um, you know may have some, you know, some different feelings about. They typically are not great jumpers. Um, every once in a while you'll get one that'll, that'll breach or, you know, get up on the surface and try and tail walk a little bit. Part of it is just because of their, the size and shape of their body, it's hard for them to get out of the water. They're not really built aerodynamic like that. Um, and, they'll, you know, initially if, when you hook them in shallow water where we're, again, as we're trying to sight fish for these fish and find them in shallow water situations, um, no different than any other game fish, they're going to want to try and run into deeper water or get to cover. So you'll, you'll typically get one, you know, one to three pretty good runs out of them. Um, you know, if you're on a big body of water uh, where they've got long flats and they try and get to the, you know, the river channel or where there's deeper water close by, um, you know, they can certainly get you into your backing pretty quickly. Um, and then a lot of it is just they use their weight in that big, deep body 
um, against you in the water when you're fighting them. So it's, the, I mean, they're a fun fish to, to fight, and they'll certainly, you know, they, they're, they're, again, a good fish not only to practice on your casting and your presentation skills, but also your fish fighting skills and how to manage a large fish when you've got them on. Well, speaking of, of, of managing them, um, let's, let's move into equipment. Uh, anything special you use, or what, what, what normal weight rod and, and what kind of reel do you use? Anything special there? Really, really is not anything special, um, you know, in terms of the rod and reel. Um, most of uh, the carp fishing that I do kind of in the, in the western and midwest states here in the, in the U.S., um, I do with a 9-foot 6 weight. Um, if I'm on a large body of water, I might go to a 9-foot 7 weight. Um, you know, some of it's dictated, to, you know, I know some of the guys up in the Great Lakes regions um, just to deal. Sometimes they throw some bigger crayfish patterns that are a little bit heavier, and they're dealing with a little more wind in some situations, so they'll, they may step up to an eight-weight rod. Um, but, I, you know, for most of the, the Rocky Mountain carp region, um, if you're fishing them there, a nine-foot, six-weight is going to be more than, more than sufficient. Um, would recommend a reel that's got a, or a relatively decent disc drag system in it, um, again, but just due to the sheer size of the fish um, and, and those initial few runs that you get from them sometimes can be fairly long. So having something you can slow them down and get them under control uh, certainly makes it, makes it helpful. Um, capacity on the reel, you know, I'd say if, if you can get 100 to 120 yards of backing, not necessarily that they're going to run you that far, but just to make sure that you keep a good arbor diameter when the fish does run some fly line off so you've got a faster retrieve and you can pick some of that line up a little more quickly. Um, so basically, you, if you're fishing lakes, um, you could be fishing lakes for, for trout or for carp or for bass, and basically you'd be using the same fly rod because uh, six weight is pretty, pretty standard on a lake, I think. Absolutely, and that's you know that, that's one of the things I talk to people about in my presentation is you know generally most of the anglers already have the equipment to go and do this. Um, it's you know in terms of fly lines as well, it's really nothing special or magic about that. Most of the time, I fish a, a just a general weight forward floating line. Um, I like a little more subdued colors um, because they they tend to to be more line and and shadow shy than some of the other fish that we're maybe casting to. Um, so more, more neutral olive and tan colored lines rather than a bright orange or a bright green um, would be my preference. Um, I also use intermediate, um, like some of the clear intermediate lines for them as well. And um, I like it, one, from a presentation standpoint, but also if you're, if you're fishing in some wind, um, the takes from these fish can be very subtle at times. And, and keeping all of the slack out of your system as you're retrieving the fly maybe with a real slow hand twist retrieve, um, the intermediate line gets you down below the chop and in the water column so that it eliminates that slack as you're retrieving the fly and you can feel the slightest little bumps or takes when those fish do pick up the fly if you can't necessarily see the whole thing happening. So I do a fair amount. I'd say probably 50% probably of my fishing is with a floating line. Uh, the other 50 is with an intermediate slow sink clear line. Um, leaders, uh, again, you know, pretty standard. Uh, if, if I've got real clear water conditions, um, I'll lengthen my leader out, um, you know, somewhere 9 to 12 feet in length, just depending kind of the reaction that I'm getting from the fish and the size flies that I'm throwing. Um, I definitely prefer fluorocarbon tippet materials, not so much from a visibility standpoint, but just from an abrasion standpoint, um, it, especially if you're fishing around a lot of um, flooded timber or structure where the fish can run in and out of that stuff. Uh, fluorocarbon just seems to hold up, and they really don't have anything sharp on their body. Um, some of their, their scale edges can be a little rough and abrading on tippet um, as, as some of the, the spiny rays and some of their fins. Um, but for the most part, you know, you're not dealing with sharp teeth or something that, that they're going to bite you off. So 
the fluorocarbon just helps with that abrasion. As water conditions kind of deteriorate or become more stained, um, I shorten my leaders up and go a little bit heavier in, in overall tippet size. But normally, if, you know, if, I'm just, if I'm starting in a new place to fish and I've got relatively clear water conditions, um, I'll start with a 9-foot, like, 2X leader. Um, and, that, and that's where I'll, where I'll start with. If, I, you know, if I'm getting refusals or getting follows or fish that are spooking from the fly, um, then I'll you know, maybe step it down to 3X. Very rarely do I fish anything less than 3X um, in most of the fishing I'm doing here in the Rocky Mountain region. There are times you know, when I've found these fish where they're up in the middle of winter on some of our river systems um, where they're sipping midges, as an example, and you've got to step down to 5 or 6X just to be able to get it in the size flies that they're wanting to eat. And we don't land many of those, but that's what you've got to do to get them to take. So again, it's, just, you know, it's kind of testing your, your skills. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break again here, Brad. Uh, when we return, we'll be answering more of your questions about fly fishing for carp, and we'll be specifically uh, looking at where we find them. Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska is owned and operated by well-known female guide, Pudge Kleinkoff. Women's Fly Fishing offers several lodge-based fly fishing schools for women, as well as an array of small group guided trips for women and couples to some of Alaska's best-known waters for salmon, rainbow trout, arctic grayling, and char. Pudge also leads saltwater fly fishing groups to Mexico each spring. Beginners are welcome and equipment is provided. Learn more about fly fishing for women at www.womensflyfishing.net or email them at pudge, that's P-U-D-G-E, at womensflyfishing.net. The phone number is 907-274-274. 7113. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Brad Beefus about carp on the fly. To ask Brad a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, below the description of the show, to click here to ask Brad your most important question. We'll be answering as many questions as possible tonight. Uh, Brad, um, okay. we've had a number of questions about the best place to find carp. What, uh, what are your recommendations? Well, I think, you know, if, if we're looking, we'll talk about still water first, and then we can talk a little bit about moving water or river mm -hmm. situations. Um, you know, in, in still water situations, um, I, again, what I like to do and what I, what I try and teach in my, my presentations and my programs is locating these fish in shallow water situations so that you can visually see the fish and, and pick individual specific fish to cast to. That's also synonymous with when they start to move in in, in, the, in those shallow areas to, to start spawning as well. And you kind of get a phenomenon early in the spring um, when things first early start to warm up. Fish will move in. We call those sunbathers. And these are fish that um, sometimes you might find them in open water that are just laid up near the surface or they're laid up in, the, in a dark-colored bottom um, shallow area kind of absorbing the, the sun's rays and getting their bodies warmed up, no differently than a, than a pike would do when they're pre-spawn. Um, those guys are usually pretty tough to entice to, to get them to eat the fly. Um, I'll still take some shots at them, but I don't spend a lot of time on those fish because it, it usually ends in frustration because it's almost like some of them are just sound asleep. I mean, you can usually wade pretty close to them. Um, it's just it's like they're comatose. Um, then you start to see definitely some of that, that schooling, spawning behavior. Um, just pre-spawn, I mean, as those fish are just starting to kind of get in numbers, 
is one of my favorite times of year to fish for them because they, they haven't full-blown gone into the spawn. Again, they're, they're social fish. They're just kind of starting to congregate in those areas, um, and, and their metabolism's going a little more, so they, they need to eat. They need to have more calorie intake to, to be able to survive and kind of prepare for the, the rigors of the spawn. They, you know, no differently than most other game fish, they like areas of structure. So if you get shallow areas that have some flooded timber or some flooded brush, um, you know, a rock point or some gravel um, areas where there are structure for them, they will tend to hold on that structure and feed around that structure as well. Then as you get into late spring, early summer, you're kind of in that prime spawn mode, post-spawn. Um, as they go post-spawn, obviously they're trying to recoup from that, so they go on a pretty heavy um, feeding binge again for, for a period of time when they're in those shallow water areas. Water temps still, you know, if you're in a low elevation where you, where you see much higher water temps later in the summer, you know, maybe it's a small farm pond or a gravel pit or something like that that's a smaller body of water and you might see some, you know, 80, low 90 degree water temps depending upon where you're living in the country. Um, those, the fish's metabolism from, from the research we've done and, and the information we've gotten from some of the fisheries biologists, their metabolism is at its, at its fastest rate <clears throat> excuse me, when they're in the, the upper 70s to low 80-degree water temp. Um, so that's when they're most actively in search of food and needing to feed in order to, to sustain and survive. And again, here in the Rockies, um, if, if you're fishing for these fish, that's probably going to be during June, early July, before we hit, you know, end of July, early August, when we see really kind of our peak still water temperatures, whether it's a mountain reservoir that has them or, or a, a lake out on the eastern plains. That summertime month, once, you know, if they're in a larger body of water, when those shallows do get real hot to where it's kind of outside their comfort zone, they're going to slide out into a little bit deeper water. So it makes it definitely a little harder for the fly rod angler. You can, you know, you can certainly go out in a boat or a float tube. I mean, you really need to have pretty good visibility or know specifically where there's concentrations of fish because blind fishing for them, I mean, while you can have success with it, um, is pretty difficult unless there's a lot of fish present. And, you know, sometimes in a, in a small farm pond that'll work because they're in a pretty closed environment and you can, you know, just by process of elimination and covering the water on a small farm pond, you, you know, sooner or later you're going to find where they're at. Um, and it may require going to a sink tip or a full sink line. Um, and, and, again, just blind fishing, you will pick up a few fish. But ideally we want to try and find those areas where we can sight fish to them. Um, again, you know, there's there certain parts of the country that you're not going to be able to do that because you've just got, you know, you've either got very tannic-colored water or it's just muddy. Um, from One, the fish do that as well when there's numbers of them, especially during the spawn, um, to where we don't have enough water clarity to, to maybe see the entire fish. But if you know areas, you know, you can, they typically will, will feed close to those areas where they like to spawn in those shallow water areas. So, you know, if you know an area where those, those fish are going to be in there spawning heavily in the spring, chances are they're going to be in and out of there throughout the summer months feeding as well. Um, so those would be areas, again, if you can't specifically sight fish to them, that you would want to focus your efforts when you are, are blind fishing for them. And I know, you know, it's, I've talked to some carp anglers out of the Midwest that, uh, in some of the eastern states that don't have good clear water conditions to be able to sight fish, and they will, you know, they'll add a little bit of scent to the fly um, just to make it easier for the fish to find the fly, and they've had some success with that. As we kind of transition into fall, um, again, as the, the shallows cool down, we will start to see the fish moving back into the shallows to a certain degree um, to where we do have more of a, an opportunity to sight fish for them. 
Um, and there's times, you know, during that, that summer period when you get into some of the, the larger reservoirs, too. Um, you know, Yellowtail Reservoir up on the Bighorn River in Montana is a good example. Uh, they do a rubber lip tournament up there, a carp fishing tournament during the midsummer. And the guides and stuff will go out in their, their drift boats on the lake or take a motorboat out there or a canoe, and you'll find schools of them kind of laid up on the surface. And, and they throw dry flies and hopper patterns and stuff at them and catch them on dries uh, during the midsummer months. The thing about them is they're very opportunistic feeders. So, you know, if they're present, and I think that it just, you know, takes talking to some different anglers or talk to the local shop that, you know, that's got a, a, a carp guy that loves to fish carp um, about some of the bodies of water that you've located carp, but you don't really know where to start, you know, kind of start talking to some of the, the fishermen, even some of the conventional tackle guys. Um, when I used to run into them on the, you know, some of the lakes on the eastern plains of Colorado, um, you know, during the summer months, those guys that are fishing for walleye and other stuff, I mean, they're seeing some of those carp when they're out there in their boats or if they're wade fishing or fishing from the bank. Um, so they can at least provide you with some clues about, hey, you know, yeah, we've seen carp in this bay or we've seen carp off at this point um, so that you kind of know where to start focusing your efforts and trying to locate some of those fish. They do move around quite a bit when they're in, in larger bodies of water as well. I mean, there's certain periods of time where they you know, where they're going to move into an area and feed, and then they may not be back in there for several weeks because they've moved either to deeper water or they found another shallow water area where, the, where food's just more abundant um, or, or a different bottom substrate. You know, a perfect example of that's in the spring when you see a lot of, um, you know, young-of-the-year crayfish in their soft-shell stage. And, I mean, which is definitely, if those are present, it's a favorite food of carp. Um, and carp will target those areas. Um, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my mind of a couple gravel pits here in Colorado that I've fished for them. And in the spring, they'll pull up on these little rocky points and, and literally root through the rocks, flipping the rocks over, looking for those crayfish and jumping on them when they spook one out of there to, to grab it. As, you know, as we get then migrate from fall into, into the winter months, um, certainly they're going to slide back out into deeper water, and it definitely becomes much harder for us to, to find them in the bigger bodies of water. Um, again, if you've got a small gravel pit or a farm pond, just a smaller body of water um, that's maybe not as deep, you can still use some of those early spring tactics when things are just starting to warm up and the fish are a little bit deeper and, you know, do some blind fishing in some areas or there may be specific times of day, um, you know, during the, the heat of summer as an example, if I'm in a small body of water, I'm going to focus my efforts more in the morning hours once those shallows have had a chance to cool down overnight and the fish are a little more comfortable in there in the low light conditions early in the morning and as those shallows warm up, they drift out into deeper water. Um, in the fall, I'm going to focus my efforts more in the afternoon when those shallows have had a chance to warm up more. If the fish aren't comfortable in there due to the cooler water temperatures, let them warm up a couple degrees or a few degrees, and sometimes those fish will slide in there to, to actively feed. And you see that same phenomenon in the spring as well. Um, you know, typically early in the mornings, you, you know, you might find them in the shallows, but they're laid up and it's kind of those sunbathers we talked about. They're, they're really not going yet because it's, it's just too cold for them. Um, but as the day wears on and those, the shallows may warm up a few degrees, then you might actively find some fish in there feeding. In the moving water situations, the, you know, really no differently. I mean, they, they, they will sit in currents just like a trout will, and they'll sit there and feed on nymphs. Um, you know, they'll, they'll sit on a current seam. You'll find them in backwater um, areas or, um, you know, pocket-type water if there's, if there's slow and fast water close to where it's going to funnel some food. But... Generally, you're going to find them in, in some slower to mid-current type situations. Uh, the, the, some of the lower reaches in the Missouri drainage up in Montana, um, fish come out of some of the reservoirs and, and spend the summer months in, the, in parts of the Missouri River. 
And it's, you know, they really are feeding the same way they would feed in a lake, but they're just in, in kind of slow to mid-current speeds. And they're feeding on crayfish by flipping the rocks over, and they're also picking off some of the, you know, the caddis and mayflies and other stuff that's present that's just drifting in the water column as well. Um, and there's instances when you get hatches, you know, maybe it'd be caddis or a specific mayfly hatch that they're going to come up and rise just like a trout would um, and, and be specific. So it can be very technical, match-the-hatch type fishing. Typically in the, in the streams, you know, if, if they're in a riffle or a run, um, I'm going to rig up a nymph fish just like I would for trout. Sometimes I'll use an indicator. Typically I'm trying to sight nymph to a specific fish, so I'll watch that fish and watch for the fish to, to try and suck the fly in or see their head lift up to see them take the fly. Um, <clears throat> but, again, trying to do it in, a, in more of a visual sense, um, you know, and, and, again, it just, I think, takes a little bit of observation, you know, when, it, when I was – taking some of my clients out from, from my fly shop and teaching them how to fish for carp and getting them their first experience, you know, taking the first 30 minutes that we were at the body of water to just kind of observe what the fish were doing, see what the, you know, their migration patterns were and if they were feeding, if they were just cruising through an area um, so that we could kind of plan our approach and the type of flies we were going to throw at them. So, Brad, basically, you know, you've, you've identified a number of ways to, to find carp you know, ask the local shops, do some scouting yourself by just walking around local lakes, it sounds like. Because exactly. um, I know I've seen a lot that way. In fact, I think on the Bighorn River in the, in the back, one of the back sloughs there, I saw a whole school of carp at one time. There's, there's some uh, big ones in those back channels. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it sounds like uh, there's, there's two approaches, which is somewhat similar to trout fishing in that, when you're fishing the stream, you said you're fishing like a trout, you would for a trout, you're doing a drift, you're fishing nymphs and so forth, and, and when you're on a lake, it's hard like it is for, for, for um, uh, trout as well uh, to, to be able to fish to a particular fish. Uh, it sounds like you have better luck blind fishing on a lake for trout than you would for the carp, though. Is, is that a true statement? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um... You know, and I think just because trout are probably, I mean, carp are predaceous to a certain extent, but carp or trout are a little more willing to to move around um, within the water column looking for their food. You know, if they're on a submerged weed bed or some submerged structure and you're stripping a woolly bugger or a leech or a scud pattern, um, you know, the carp a lot of times, even when they will move into to deeper water, I mean, they're not 100% bottom feeding. Um, because we will catch them, you know, sometimes a fish that's cruising, you can strip a small leech pattern or a damselfly nymph, and they'll swim over and track it down and eat it. But um, that's not a normal characteristic that you see a lot. I mean, I'm sure it is for, for some of the listeners that are here that have pursued them. Um, you know, they may have a special place that they fish for them where they see some of these behaviors more often than not. But typically these fish are rooting around in the bottom and they're opportunistic looking for different food organisms. So that's one of the things that makes it difficult blind fishing for them in, in deeper, more open water um, because it, they will, they're not as concentrated as, you know, as the summer months kind of wear on and they get out in those deeper water areas. The spawn is over, so the attraction of staying in a large group um, and being social like they would be in the spring and early summer isn't as as uh, prone to happen, um, so you've just got to cover a lot of water, and there's a lot more, um, you know, ifs involved uh, in terms of being able to locate one and get them to eat your fly when you are blind fishing. Yeah. Well, Brad, what is it that carp eat? Uh, probably a better question would be what don't they eat? Okay. Uh, because they, as I mentioned, they're very opportunistic. Um, they will, you know, again, and this is kind of one of the things that 
that prevails their rep, their reputation as well as or some of the notions that they're a trash fish because they will get in you know sometimes a, a mucky or soft bottom area and they filter feed. I mean they will just suck up mouthfuls of debris and you'll if you watch them in clear water where you can see this you'll see them suck a clump of algae up or a clump of just whatever off the bottom and it they blow it out through their gill plates and if they keep what they want they've got a um, basically like a crushing mechanism in the back of their throat. So if they get something hard like a, a snail or a crayfish or, you know, something that's got a harder exoskeleton on it, they can crush it and then consume it. Um, you know, they, so anything that aquatically lives in their environment, they'll feed on. Um, I have seen them where they've actually schooled up um, small bait fish in a still water environment like fathead huh. minnows. Wow. And we'll go in and, and actually feed on those, have two or three fish in there moving around, grabbing bait fish. Um, and when it comes to terrestrial life forms, I mean, you know, actual terrestrial insects, they'll eat hoppers and ants and beetles. Uh, they'll eat a lot of terrestrial plant life as well. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the patterns we've got in the book and um, that, you know, you see in some of the articles and stuff that, that people are writing about them, cottonwood seeds are, are a pretty prominent part of their summertime diet when there's a lot of that present. Um, some areas of the country where they have mulberries, and those mulberries drop off the trees um, into those those waters. The carp will come over and, and grab those mulberries. I've seen them, you know, if you've got overhanging brush, and um, like Russian olive trees is a good example where you've got the Russian olive berries. And I've actually seen them come over there when those things are submerged down in the water, where they'll come over and pull leaves off and pull those berries off to feed on those things, if, even if they aren't dropping in the water. So, yeah. you know, just, just about everything. Um, you know, you go to some of the city park lakes where people feed uh, um, the ducks and they feed popcorn and bread and that kind of stuff, and the carp get attuned to that, so they'll come up and feed on that stuff as well. Um, you know, I know uh, Jeff Courier, who's one of the other guests that, you've, that you had on earlier this right. year, uh, Jeff fishes a lake at uh, one of the trade shows down in Phoenix when he's down there, and it's right next to their hotel. And the same thing, kids and parents come and feed the ducks bread. And he went to the Walmart store and purchased a, a foam toilet bowl cleaner that was kind of off-white in color, <laughs> cut a chunk of it off and super glued it on a hook, and colored one side of it brown to look like the bread crust, and they catch these great big grass carp down there on this fly because it kind of sinks like a piece of bread. It sinks real slow, and it has the general shape. And they were catching big, you know, 25, 30-pound grass carp on these things. Okay. So so my next question was going to be what what are you imitating when you tie your flies for carp? Perhaps I should be asking what don't you try to imitate with your flies? It is. You know, most of my, my subsurface patterns, um, you know, I mentioned early in the show throwing some different bonefish flies and a lot of our, our trout patterns that we use. One of my, my favorite flies is a, a Clouser swimming nymph, uh, which is a pattern that Bob Clouser developed for smallmouth on the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. And it, was a, um, it basically imitates the big hexagenia mayfly nymphs. And it uh, was commercially produced for a number of years by Umpqua feather merchants. And they had a kind of a rusty brown color. And, you know, just kind of, again, trial and error, throwing different flies that I had in my box or, you know, I'd tie up different trout stuff or different bass stuff. And we'd, if, if the opportunity was there and I had that fly tied on, I'd throw it at a carp if, if I had a shot at one. And just, you know, sort, sort, sort of um, through process of elimination, found some flies that just tended to work a little bit better consistently for them. Uh, Brad, uh, Ray... Eckelberger in Mountjoy, Pennsylvania. Since you just mentioned Pennsylvania, he wrote in 
and he says, uh, sounds like you fished for carp all over the United States. Would you say there's a difference in patterns that are effective on the East Coast versus uh, the West Coast and in between? And it sounds like you just identified the, the Clouser fly there as, as a possible um, option for him in Pennsylvania. Are there others that you've noticed work better in different areas of the United States? There, you know, there's, there's going to be some specific, you know, occurrences of a, of a, a particular hatch or maybe, a, you know, a particular aquatic life form that you find one place that you don't find another place that the fish will feed on. Um, you know, the, the guys that are doing a lot of fishing on Lake Michigan, you know, maybe up in the upper UP of Michigan or uh, Door County in Wisconsin, um, they throw a lot of crayfish because the, the carp are up on the same limestone um, structure that a lot of the smallmouth are. So like a Whitlock's near enough crayfish is a fly that they throw a lot up in that area. Um, and certainly, I mean, I, I use that fly here in Colorado and, and have good results with it where, in fisheries where there are a number of crayfish. I th you know, I think the biggest thing, and, I, and Barry and I have kind of dialogued uh, a lot about this uh, in the process of doing the book and, and just fishing together when we've been out there, you know, I think presentation is probably the biggest key, more so than being pattern-specific. And then second to that, I think having flies that have a lot of movement and a lot of life um, to them so that you can fish them with a slow retrieve and still have a lot of, you know, things like marabou or rabbit, rubber legs that provide a lot of movement and life in the fly without you having to strip it, you know, real long strips or, um, you know, real erratic stripping motion to get it to move and look alive. Um, so most of my subsurface flies as a result of that, um, you know, I've kind of modified the, the Clouser um, nymph pattern and made it a little bit fuller and a little bit longer, bushier legs on it. Um, things that, uh, again, with, with through rabbit hair and marabou and throwing some silly legs or rubber legs in there, um, I can get a lot of movement fishing a real slow retrieve, like a hand twist retrieve, um, you know, where I just want to barely crawl that thing, or even some flies where I want to fish in mid-depth in the water column, kind of suspend them so I can keep them in front of the fish longer. There's a, a pattern that I tie, and it's in the book, um, and it was also uh, the pattern for it was listed in an article I did in Fly Fisherman Magazine uh, two or three years ago called a wiggle bug. And it is a, it's basically just chamois or um, a synthetic chamois of material called bug skin that I tie extended off the back of the hook trimmed in the shape of a V. And then I just, it's a simple dubbed body with a big, full, um, like a hen hackle, soft tackle. And that fly, um, when you fish it on a floating or an intermediate line, it just, it's real slow. It's almost neutral buoyancy. It just sinks real slow, but that, that little tail that you've trimmed out of the chamois just kind of wiggles and undulates as it sinks. So in, like, sunbathers, as an example, I can throw that in front of them, and it just sinks real slow, and they get a little bit of kick and movement out of the tail, and I'm not even stripping the fly. Um, again, a sunbather, they don't eat all the time, or, or most of the time, but that's been a fly that I've had some success with those fish. Uh, just a standard soft tackle pattern that you would throw for trout, maybe in a little bit larger size and dressed a little bit fuller, um, like a peacock soft tackle or a hare's ear soft tackle, and maybe oversize the soft tackle a little bit so that when you do strip it, you get a little more movement and undulation out of it. Um, those are some of the things that I found just in watching the fish that, at least for me, um, trigger more response of interest to get them either to follow or to come over and take the fly. Well, Brad, we're going to have to take a little bit of a break here again, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about flies. In fact, uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about the crayfish, because we do have a question from uh, Joe down in Louisiana about crayfish, and they know about crayfish down there. So uh, we'll take a break now. All right.
John's Guide Service is Northern Michigan's premier fly fishing guide service and outfitter. Join John and explore rivers such as the Manistee, Pier Marquette, and Osable on guided trips for trout, salmon, and steelhead. Take a look at the website and see why John's Guide Service has so much to offer in northern Michigan. www.johnsguideservice.com That's J-O-N-S guideservice.com or contact John toll free at 1-877-636-5603. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio and we're talking with Brad Beefus about fishing for carp on the fly. If you'd like to ask Brad a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says, click here to ask Brad your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show tonight as possible. Well, Brad, uh, like I said, I wanted to ask you about the uh, crayfish. Uh, Joe uh, McMahon in, in Thibodeau, Louisiana, asks, Brad, I've seen people catch carp on crayfish patterns on clear water, hard-bottom flats in the Great Lakes. A dark olive and black grayfish pattern might work in the muddy waters of our South Louisiana bayous. But I would not know what size to throw or what areas to target. Um, and also, is there any time of year that's better for the crayfish? And I think you were talking about that a little bit earlier. But can you elaborate on the crayfish a bit? Yes. Um, you know, it seems to be their, when it comes to feeding on crayfish, their, one of their preferred things, as I mentioned earlier, are, are more juvenile-sized crayfish. Um, uh, you know, I, I have, I actually I've caught a couple of carp where when I've gone to land them and you look inside the, you know, up inside the lips and the mouth, um, where there's a pretty hefty sized claw still in there and they, and they still took my fly. So, you know, certainly I think they do eat some of the larger, more adult-sized crayfish, but definitely there's a preference, um, you know, at spring, early summer when you find more of those juvenile crayfish available for them. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, they're probably fishing some clear water where, where he's at in Louisiana, uh, possibly you know fishing some stained or tannic-colored water where they may not be able to um, sight fish 100% of the time, and they may just see fish rolling or kind of jumping and nervous water moving around. I think going to some patterns that are maybe a little larger in size and maybe a little bulkier, the way they're tied, a little fuller tied, so that they, they push some water, create some vibration as you're retrieving them, or so that they're, you know, put some lead eyes on them so they get down on the bottom and throw a little mud cloud up or, or kind of displace some of the debris on the bottom to make it easier for the fish to find them. You know, no, no differently than a largemouth in dirty water fishing a, you know, a, a larger pattern for them, something, again, that displaces some water so that they can find it where they're not relying so much on eyesight but on the vibration through their lateral line to locate the food item. Um, and, I, and I definitely am, am a firm believer of that in, in carp. I mean, if, you know, I definitely have much better success in dirty water conditions um, where I can't specifically throw to, a, to one fish or to a group of fish, um, fishing larger flies and stuff that's, that's bulkier in size, sometimes putting a little flash into them. Um, and I know, I've, you know, I've talked, everybody kind of has their own, you know, no differently than any other type of fly selection. Everybody kind of has their own favorites that work for them. Um, but I generally don't throw a whole lot of flash in, into most of my patterns unless it's real stained water conditions. Um, you know, I talked to a couple gentlemen in, in Texas uh, about a year ago that they do very well with real bright colored flies down there. And it's, you know, it's somewhat stained water, but they're pretty much sight fishing. But they do well with bright oranges and chartreuse and yellows and with 
with a fair amount of flash in their flies. So I think you know there's little subtleties with each fishery and and what the fish like and dislike. So I think you know there's certainly a lot of room for experimentation with different fly patterns for these fish. Sure. Well, now we've had actually a lot of questions from a lot of different parts of the country and up in Canada regarding how your choice of flies might vary with time of year and particularly as relates to winter. Okay. You know, the, and I'm assuming if they're fishing winter, they're probably um, fishing moving water to a certain extent, um, especially if they're up in Canada or something of that nature. Right. Um, you know, really no differently than in, in you know, a trout's environment or, or other warm water species that you might fish for. Um, you know, certainly you're going to go smaller sizes as water volume is less in, in, in terms of current. Clarity is probably much better um, if, if they're in a clear water situation. So, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, it's it's certainly feasible that you might fish small little midges and need to really drop your tippet size down to be able to make them drift and look natural in the current. Um, certainly as water temps slow down, you want to slow if you're in even in a moving water situation where maybe you're still throwing a crayfish pattern or, you know, some very generic nymph like a clouser swimming nymph, um, that you want to slow that retrieve down and fish it very deliberate, keep it in front of the fish as long as you possibly can, um, and I think you're going to have better results with that. So, I, I mean, it's kind of a tough question to answer, um, you know, in, in a short summary because I think it's really going to vary depending upon where you're at, and I think it's just having a good understanding, no differently than if you're fishing trout or other species, you know, what food items are there. Um, you know, certainly during the summer months when there's caddis and mayflies and other activities, you know, I've, I've seen this at, at 11 mile a number of times when the damselfly hatches on, the carp are mixed in right in with the trout chasing damselfly nymphs. Um, if the wind lays down, they're right up on the surface eating the adults too. Um, I've, you know, I've seen them key in on uh, uh, trico hatches. There's a small little creek that I used to do some waterfowl hunting on, and um, in late August, early September, there was tricos, and really the only fish that was in the creek were carp, and they were sitting there in our decoys sipping trico spinners, you know, like size 22 and 24s. Um, so, I mean, we landed a couple of them, but, you know, again, you're fishing 6X, and, you know, we'd go out there with three and four weight rods just trying to target these carp, but they're just so strong, you set the hook in one turn and they're gone. Um, so I think, you know, having an understanding of what the food items are and, the, the you know, what food sources are available to them, um, in the specific areas that you're that you're fishing for them, and the time of year is certainly going to be beneficial, and that's going to really dictate what what patterns you're going to carry and want to throw at them. Well, Brad, uh, I got to ask the question here from Gabe in Walnut, California. Um, I think you've kind of answered this overall, but he says, "What's the single most effective fly for still water and for moving water?" And I, I think I think I know what your answer is going to be, uh, but go ahead. I would, you know, day in and day out, um, clouser swimming nymph, um, you know, as I mentioned, st you know, starting with a, a six-weight rod and a floating line, nine-foot, two-X liter. Um, I mean, if, if you guys were to take me to your favorite carp spot and I'd never fished there before, I would I would tie on a clouser swimming nymph. Um, I'd probably, usually I'd tie it on like a three-X long heavy wire nymph hook um, or, a, or a streamer hook, and I would probably start with like a size 8 or a size 10 if I was fishing spring, summer, or fall when there's larger food items more, more prevalently available for them. You know, and, and again, it may vary. I mean, if, if I was in a river situation um, and I'm going to nymph fish for them, uh, you know, to be honest, a beadhead prince nymph or a beadhead pheasant tail with some rubber legs, um, and I do a lot of my princes instead of white biots, I'll put white rubber leg or white silly legs on them. Um, and leave them a little bit longer so they move a little more as that's kind of drifting through the 
through the water current. Um, you know, those, those two standard trout patterns are pretty tough to beat day in and day out. Brad, let's move on into to presentation. Uh, here's a question from Al Chris in Glen Rose, Texas, and he says, do cruising carp ever take a fly? I found that casting to them is a waste of time. Can you give them a few tips? There's, they can certainly be, be very tough. Um, you know, the, the cruisers are, you know, I think, I think you see that behavior probably in three different scenarios. Um, first being early in the spring when they're starting to get grouped up and ready for the spawn, you'll see singles, small groups, large groups of fish cruising through areas. Um, you see a little bit of that when water temps first start warming up. Um, then you see some of that behavior post-spawn as fish are generally moving to some other area other than their spawning area um, where you see cruising fish. So, for, I mean, that's a very good question that he asked. And certainly I won't pass that opportunity up to throw at them. Um, generally, I think for the most part, those fish have got other things on their mind. Um, it's either spawning or it's moving to another area um, where they may be going to feed or to, you know, join up with a larger group of the fish. Um, you know, there are instances where they will will take the fly, and I think generally the cruisers that I have my best success with are when the fish are pre-spawn. Um, they're kind of moving in and out of areas, and you're, you don't have masses of fish in the shallows yet, but you, you know, fish are starting to migrate into those areas. And if you can get, again, wade outside of those areas so you can pick individual fish coming in and out of those areas as they're, as they're pre-spawn and, and just starting to, again, get their metabolism going, I've had better success with those fish. Um, the other thing is if you have a hatch, something like damselflies, where you've got a pretty aggressive swimming nymph um, and they're cruising, those fish will sometimes react and eat those flies. And, I, you know, a lot of it is, is certainly hit and miss with those guys. I don't spend a lot of time with them. I mean, and the nice thing about cruisers is usually if they do have something else on their mind, they don't spook very easily. So you can throw pretty close to them. You know, generally I'll try and lead those fish several feet and throw a little bit beyond them so I can kind of strip the fly if I can see it and control the fly to get it in front of the fish. Um, and I, I certainly think if you've got a fish that's cruising at a certain depth within the water column, the longer you can keep the fly in front of them, the more success you'll have with getting that fish to eat. Um, they typically don't respond, you know, if you've got a real heavily weighted nymph or maybe a crayfish with some lead eyes or a bonefish fly with some heavy eyes on it that's weighted, if you throw that at a fish that's kind of cruising in, in open water and it's, it's kind of jigging, if you will, in and out of his sight zone, um, I've had less success with those types of patterns in that situation. So something like a more neutral buoyant fly that you can get and maintain at the depth that the fish is at, um, I've had better success getting them to eat. Now, we've, we've heard carp referred to as the poor man's bonefish, and I, I think there are a lot of similarities. Uh, partially they're skittish and partially they're, they're strong when they do take. But uh, have you found that they really are that skittish? And if so, what's your preferred method of sneaking up on them and delivering a fly in a fashion that won't spook them? Okay. Um, that, that's actually a great question. They... One thing to keep in mind about carp, um, I mean, I think everybody knows they, they do extremely well with smelling food items, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, many of the European anglers use soft baits. They call them boilies, and they're basically like a, a dough bait um, that is scented, and they have all different scents of bait for those fish to be able to locate that food item. Throwing an artificial fly, if we don't put scent on it, um, we rely either on their eyesight 
or we rely on, again, we talked about in dirty water, and even in clear water, having a fly that pushes or displaces some water because it's a bulkier pattern. Um, so the fish can help locate or, or attempt to locate that based on what they're picking up with their lateral line. Carp have um, an apparatus that links their lateral line to their swim bladder um, or, their, or through their swim bladder in their inner ear. It's called a Weberin apparatus. <clears throat> and it makes them very adept at picking up vibration and, and shock waves, if you will, that travel through the water. So, um, you know, wearing studded wading shoes and walking on a gravel bottom um, is one thing that's going to put them on guard or send them heading out for deeper water into, into cover. And, you know, when, when we're fishing them in shallow water where we can sight fish, obviously we're looking for the fish that are tailing, um, exhibiting that bonefish or redfish style feeding behavior where their snouts are down on the bottom and they're mudding and filtering and looking for food down there. Um, we can sort of use that to our advantage because the fish, if he's pointed down at an angle, he's looking his sight windows at a pretty small area of the bottom right in front of him. Um, so one, it does require getting the fly fairly close to them or placing the fly so that they're going to swim up to it and intercept it as they're mudding it and then stripping the fly to give it some life and make it look like it's something that they want to eat. Um, they, just like other fish or like a bonefish, they don't really tolerate the fly coming at them. Um, if they see that movement, um, a lot of times it's just not natural to them and you'll see them veer off. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of couple different scenarios. If you're casting to a group of fish where you've got a school of fish and some of them might be cruising, they may be moving through an area slowly, some are down rooting and feeding occasionally, um, I recommend avoid throwing at the lead fish. If, if you spook that lead fish or he refuses the fly or you kind of put him on guard because of a poor presentation, generally the rest of the school will kind of follow suit in that same pattern. It kind of puts them on guard. Um, so I generally, in a, in a group of fish, I'll try and pick fish that are back in the pack a little bit and closest to me um, so that I'm, I'm picking fish on the edge and I'm not trying to throw my leader over the backs of other fish to get to a larger fish in the middle of the group or something of that nature. And that way, if I make a bad cast, I might only blow up a portion of that group um, and send them running out for cover, and I still may get some shots at some other fish. Um, and that's if you've got fish that are kind of moving. If you've got fish that are mudding and tailing and they're moving really slow and deliberately, those are the guys that are really feeding that we've probably got the best chance of being able to lay a fly in there and get them to eat. Um, I'll try and position myself so I can get a more head-on shot to the fish or just slightly angled um, to a head-on shot. And again, I'll throw a little bit beyond the fish and then if, hopefully you can see the fly when it lands, strip it rather quickly so that you can get the fly to almost free fall or drop right on their snout, just right in front of them. And a lot of times when they're down there feeding, again, they're tailing and they're looking right at what's in front of them. All of a sudden, here comes something. Again, it may have some marabou or some rubber legs on it. It's wiggling and it drops right in front of them. They don't, you don't even have to strip it. They won't even hesitate. You'll see the head come up and you'll see the, that big round mouth open up and they'll eat the fly. So I think, again, getting the fly at a point where they can see it and making it look natural. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get fish, you'll start stripping it, doing little bonefish-style strips, or you're kind of crawling a crayfish on the bottom with a hand twist retrieve, and they'll definitely turn off their, their current path that they're traveling and, and mudding and looking for food and start following your fly. If they don't swim right up and eat it, you probably want to change the rate of the retrieve or, you know, throw with your rod tip. Sometimes I'll try and throw a mend to the left or to the right, so that the fly will change a little bit of direction, and that also, you know, it may get the fly to hop up off the bottom when you make that mend. Um, so varying that, that retrieve when you start to get follows, I think, is a critical thing to do to, to make sure that you're going to get an eat from the fish. Um, if you're in real shallow, clear water and it's a bright, sunny day, 
Um, obviously trying not to throw the fly line over the fish, um, and you're going to lead the fish a little bit more. So it leaves, you know, the, the ideal conditions where it's gin clear water and the fish are, are, you know, tailing periodically and moving around um, are probably the most demanding conditions because it requires good casting accuracy, a little bit of luck because you're hoping the fish continues on the same pattern that it's, that it's swimming so that you can intercept it with your fly. Um, so, you know, ideally just a little bit of chop, maybe just a little bit of color to the water because the fish is a little more comfortable. He uses that colored water, or if it's overcast, he's going to use that as some natural cover, and you can throw the fly a little bit closer. And again, in real shallow situations, you don't typically need a real heavily weighted fly. When, and when I say real shallow water, that's probably three feet or less um, because you can, you can throw a lighter fly and just let it take a little longer to get down to the depth of the fish. So you can throw closer to the fish in those cases. Um, you know, if you've got a situation where the fish's back is out of the water as they're swimming, I'm definitely not going to throw a great big heavily weighted nymph or crayfish at them um, because a lot of times just the splat of the fly hitting the water um, with, with a, a hard landing is enough that it's going to either spook them and they're going to blow out of there or they're going to pick up their pace and they're going to kind of stop feeding them. I mean, you definitely see that behavioral change um, in, in, their, in their swimming pattern. So, you know, no differently than approaching a bonefish or a redfish. I mean, you can use a lot of the same tactics you know, wade slowly. Don't push a big wake of water out in front of you. Um, and I've, I've got a dear friend that I, I tried to get into his first cart for about three years, and he's like wading like a bull wading through a china closet. I mean, he just, you know, just really aggressive wader. And every time we'd try and sneak up on fish, he'd start moving faster because he'd get excited and his casting would start falling apart because he's getting buck fever because he could see the size of the fish. <laughs> and the, the wake of water that he was creating from wading would hit the fish. And it would, like, put them on guard. You'd see them in the feeding behavior stop. They'd start moving around a little bit more. You know, worst-case scenario, they'd just completely blow up and spook because it, was, it wasn't right. They just, you know, they felt your presence there. Um, and you see that when you fish some of these city park lakes and stuff. Um, you know, you, one particular lake that I used to fish, you'd sneak up and get into casting position, and a jogger would go by. And even just the vibration from the jogger on the sidewalk um, at 30 or 40 feet away was enough to blow the fish out of there. Um, mm -hmm. So, it you know it varies, and I think that you know places where they receive more pressure, they're going to be a little bit more spooky. I mean, if you know if you've got access to a little farm pond or something like that where they're not seeing um, as many anglers casting to them, they're certainly going to you know typically be a little bit easier to approach. Well, Brad, um, we're we're running short on time, but I'm going to try to hit three people's questions here at once because they all kind of center around the same issue. Um, we've got Gabe in Walnut, California. Uh, when fishing lakes or ponds where you aren't able to sight fish murky conditions, how do you go about fishing to them? And then we've got Ed in Summersville, West Virginia. Uh, what's, how do you successfully hook up with carp in deep lakes? And then we've got Ron in Holland uh, who says uh, the temperatures are dropping there and the water is decreasing, the, the, the fish are going deeper, and, um, and they're not as active. And, and What's your techniques there? So these are all kind of like deep water or blind fishing uh, presentations. Can can you kind of address those? Sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned with with blind fishing, I mean, you're certainly going to limit your your success because you've got to cover a lot of water, and you really need to cover it pretty deliberately because they, in many cases, they need to get the fly pretty close to them in proximity um, to to have good interest from the fish. So <clears throat> we'll talk first about dirty water, and then I'll address more of the deep water stuff. Um, dirty water situation, I think throwing flies that are a little bigger, throwing flies that, again, have more mass to them, that displace some water, make it easier for the fish to, to find the fly. 
Um, you know, I've played around with some different things, putting some rattles in the flies and um, using some of the conventional, like uh, the, the way some of the um, West Coast bass anglers fish with uh, like a brass cone weight and a glass bead behind it, the brass and glass technique to, to create some vibration or some noise. Um, I've had kind of mixed results with that. I mean, some fish have eaten it well. Um, other fish have just completely want nothing to do with it. So, um, I, you know, I think you can kind of experiment with some of those different things. Certainly if you're fishing new water and it's a big reservoir, it's dirty water or it's deep water, um, you need to do a little bit of homework and try and figure out some of the behavioral patterns of the fish, where they're at, um, you know, at certain times of year so that you can focus your efforts in those areas um, when you are blind fishing. And again, you know, I've talked to numerous anglers that, that fish areas like that, and, you know, that, I mean, to, to really effectively do it on fly gear, you probably need to put some scent on your fly in order to make that happen because they don't have the luxury of the shallow water that, you know, that some of us do have. So, um, you know, there are numerous commercial products available that you can, you can add some scent to the fly. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's numerous, if you go online and just do a Google search for carp fishing or carp angling, um, there are thousands of sites that will come up that have all kinds of recommendations for guys using conventional gear, and you can adapt some of those techniques um, using scent on your flies to do blind fishing in more open water, dirty water situations. Um, and I think, you know, and I think that's probably the same same type of thing for the, the gentleman in Holland that was asking about fishing larger, deeper water. Um, you know, water temperatures are cooling off, so the fish's metabolism slowing. They're heading out to deeper water. Um, again, you know, keep in mind that these carp are, or carp in general, are pretty social animals. So, um, you know, usually when you find numbers of them or you start to find fish, you're going to find good numbers of them um, throughout the season. So, again, you know, maybe you're using some, you know, a fish finder on your float tube or on a pontoon boat or, or a normal boat when you're out or a canoe to locate some schools of carp in open water and then adapting a lot of the same techniques that we've talked about for shallow water and the same flies, but you're going to have to fish heavier flies full sinking lines to get down to where the fish are at. Um, probably not the most ideal conditions, and certainly spring when they come back shallow, as he's mentioning, um, is going to be your best opportunity. Um, you know, if you've got river systems where you've got some backwater areas or some sloughs that the fish will move into, um, maybe you've got some springs that feed in and the water temp's a little bit warmer, um, no different than the trout and the other fish that are there, the carp are going to move in there as well, and you can adapt a lot of those shallow water sight fishing techniques in those situations. Maybe a last question. Uh, this is sort of about behavior of carp. And I remember seeing this as a kid in streams in summer. What are carp doing when they're in schools at the, uh, at the surface and it looks like they're gulping air? They are, you know, they are able to take oxygen from the surface or terrestrially take oxygen um, as well as through their gills. And you know, it's a behavior that I, I see quite frequently um, you know, in, in smaller bodies of water when water temps get warm. Um, the biologists, you know, I haven't really been able to get a sound answer if they are actually up there, you know, breathing, if you will, taking oxygen um, from, from the, the, the surface. Um, you know, there's times when they're up eating, I've seen them eating algae where it's the same type of behavior. Their, their mouths and lips are coming out. Um, so I think there's a, a number of things. You know, most of the time late in the summer, you know, mid-late summer when the water temps are hot or you see them in a, in a creek situation like that, I don't 
typically think that that's, personally don't think that that's associated with, with a feeding behavior because um, you can throw dry flies and stuff in there. And occasionally, I mean, you'll time it right where you get one in there and they happen to come up and they just suck the fly in. I don't necessarily think that it's, that it's feeding, but it's just by chance you got it in the right place at the right time and you'll hook some of those guys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, there's been times where I've had groups, you know, large groups like that where they're up doing that and you pick a fish on the edge of the school and you throw a small nymph or something in there and you start stripping it and a fish will peel off and eat it. So, you know, any opportunity I have to throw to these fish in a sight fishing situation, um, you know, I'm going to take those opportunities. If I'm not seeing positive results, meaning a follow or fish eating the fly, um, I don't spend a lot of time on a particular group or a particular um, fish. I'll move on and find another fish. Well, Brad, um, unfortunately we're out of time. It's time to wrap things up. Maybe as a parting note, we can just say uh, give carp a try out there, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, a great game fish that's just waiting uh, for anglers to come out and pursue with fly tackle. Well, it sounds like they give us a lot of opportunities at times of the year when we when we can't fish for other fish, so uh, uh, I'm going to sure uh, look into it more. Well, when we return, we're going to do a drawing for an autographed copy of Brad's book, Carp on the Fly and a uh, one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine. So stay tuned to see if you win. Have you ever dreamed about the classic action of bamboo fly rods? Did you know it's possible to make your own bamboo fly rod? With the help of Power Fibers online magazine, you can do just that. Power Fibers is a magazine dedicated to making bamboo fly rods and telling the stories about bamboo through the ages. From rod-making techniques to stories about fishing bamboo rods, to rod maker profiles, to classic tapers, Power Fibers has it all. Visit our website at www.powerfibers.com. That's powerfibers.com for more information. We hope to hear from you soon. On our global events calendar tonight, we see that Bob Mitchell's Fly Shop in St. Elmo, Minnesota has a busy schedule. They're the home of the longest running fly tying class in the Twin Cities. Tomorrow, October 19th, Scott Norby will hold a class on tying realistic fly patterns, which begins at 7 p.m. And on Saturday, October 28th, Skip James will present a program at 10.30 in the morning on Exploring Isle Royale. That's at Bob Mitchell's Fly Shop in St. Elmo, Minnesota. Go to the events calendar under Minnesota for further information, and be sure to tell them you heard about it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Remember... List any fly fishing related events yourself on our events calendar. And please remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing related happenings on the events calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Well, now it's time to give away an autographed copy of Brad's book, Carp on the Fly. And this comprehensive guide will teach you everything you need to know about these challenging fish, including what flies they'll take and how to put those flies in the right place at the right time time to catch these fish consistently. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from this show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so on our next show. You don't want to miss out a, on a chance at the incredible prizes we, we have to offer. And if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with the information on how to receive your gift. So here it goes. And our first winner, and this is for Brad's book, is going to be... And we press the magic button. It's going to be Jay Johnson, Jay Johnson in Washington. So, Jay, congratulations, and uh, I'm sure you're going to become a carp fisherman if you aren't already. And then we're going to give away also um, 
and, and, and for those of you, by the way, that didn't win uh, Brad's book, you can go to Brad's bio page on our website. And uh, at the bottom of that, there's a link where you can find both his books out on Amazon.com. So uh, that's one place that you'll be able to find those books, as well as you can try. Many of them are offered in, in the local shops. Well, let's give away that one-year subscription to uh, Fly Fusion Magazine. And the winner there is uh, Kim Adkins in Pennsylvania. Kim Adkins. So, Pennsylvania's been on a, on a roll lately. What? Pennsylvania's been on a roll lately. Yeah, they've been coming up all over the place here. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's it. So congratulations to everybody there. Well, and uh, They'll enjoy those. And, uh, yes. uh, you know, we, we really had a lot of questions we were unable to cover tonight. And I would certainly encourage everyone to find uh, Brad's book, uh, Carp on the Fly, and as well as his video, Tying Flies for Carp. Uh, uh, these are really valuable. And, and Brad, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being with us tonight. And I uh, want to thank you for taking time to educate us about carp and about fly fishing for this challenging fish. And I hope you'll be able to join us again sometime in the future. All right. Look forward to it, guys. I appreciate uh, you inviting me to be on the show. Great. Well, thanks, Brad. And on our next broadcast, which will be on November 1st at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Time, on that show, we'll interview Denny Rickards, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing for trophy trout in still waters. Denny has been fishing, guiding, and studying trout behavior for the past 30 years. He's an expert on fishing lakes and has developed a selection of suggestive flies that put the trophy trout on the take. So join us to hear about Denny's latest new techniques on fishing lakes. We'd like to thank R.L. Winston Rod Company, Jacqueline's Fly Shop, Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska, John's Guide Service and Power Fibers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it, and good night, everyone, and good fishing. <laughs>